So the last time we were gathered together was Palm Sunday. And what we learned was that Jesus was ushering in a kingdom that in his words was not of this world. He was ushering in a kingdom where violence and war are replaced with sacrificial love and peace. But this was not what the people were hoping for. This was not what they were expecting. As the week of Jesus' passion continued, there were a few key events that further illustrated the sort of kingdom Jesus was inaugurating. In John 13, during Jesus' final meal with his friends, we read of him washing the feet of his disciples. A task usually reserved for servants within a household, revealing the humility which marked this kingdom. We learned that during this meal that the devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, demonstrating that the conflict was spiritual and that the kingdoms of this world were at odds with the kingdom of God. In John 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus gave what he called a new commandment, to love one another in the same way he had loved them, a love that was to be demonstrated in just a few short hours. And then following what has been traditionally referred to as the high priestly prayer, Jesus is arrested. During that scene, Simon Peter took up arms to defend his friend, but Jesus rebuked him and told him to put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me. As the events continue to unfold, we're introduced to a few more characters. Jesus is brought to both Annas and Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. We're reminded that Caiaphas, not knowing what he was saying, argued that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. We learn of Simon Peter's three-time denial of Jesus, all occurring before the rooster crowed. Jesus is questioned by the high priest, and then he is questioned by Pilate, and he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. At this point, Pilate finds no fault in Jesus. In fact, it appears as though he really doesn't want anything to do with the events unfolding before him. But it is his job to keep the peace. Pilate makes one last effort to release him, appealing to the religious leaders' disdain for the zealots and their armed rebellions, but the people cry out for Barabbas to be released a known insurrectionist and murderer. And the fate of Jesus is sealed. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 19. The passage will also be on the screen behind me. I really don't plan on keeping us here for too long tonight. There's just a few things I want to highlight for us as we remember the death of our Lord. And that's what Good Friday is. It's that day during Passion Week where we remember the death of our Lord. Where verses like John 3.16 are put into action. 
John chapter 19, verses 1 through 8 says this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. The entire section is dripping with irony. A crown of thorns, a purple robe, and the mocking words of hail king of the Jews. Little did they know they were in fact lifting up the son of God to his rightful place. And then the words of Pilate, see I am bringing him out to you. Jesus had been flogged, stripped, and made to look like a fool, a criminal. Pilate wants the people to see this, to see how little of a threat this man poses. That you may know I find no guilt in him. How could this man be guilty of anything? Look at him. And then he says the words that reverberate throughout all of human history. Behold the man. Behold the man. Pilate is not only mocking Jesus, but he is mocking the people, the religious leaders, all who believe that this man, Jesus, posed any threat. But in uttering these words, the gospel writer John wants us to remember who this man is. The word made flesh. The one who dwelt among us. In the words of one commentator, this man was displaying his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, in the very disgrace, pain, weakness, and brutalization that Pilate advanced upon him. I'm reminded of Paul's master story from Philippians chapter 2. Because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Because he was in the form of God, he made himself nothing. Because he was in the form of God, he took on the form of a slave. Because he was in the form of God, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Behold the man. Behold the man in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell the response of the chief priests and the officials after seeing him bloodied and humiliated, they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate again tries to pass the buck, but the religious leaders in almost serpent-like 
fashion, manipulate him, and he was terrified. Verses 7 through 8, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Pilate was even more afraid. It says in verse 9 through 11, he entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. Now I imagine Pilate, as he enters his headquarters again, that he's trembling with fear. He says, where are you from? I don't think this was just a casual ask. I imagine that there is fear and anxiety in his voice. Sure, he's probably angry, but there's way more beneath the surface than simply anger. Where are you from equals, why do these people hate you so much? Why is the entire city in an uproar over you? What in the world is going on? What in the world is going on? Notice Jesus' reply. He gives him no answer. Silent before his accusers. See, Jesus is not trying to get out of this one. Many times throughout his earthly ministry, he avoided capture, he avoided death, but not this time. The hour has arrived. He knows full well that this is his cup to drink. This is why he came. But he does say something. Pilate tells him that he has the authority to release him and to crucify him in verse 10, to which Jesus responds, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. In other words, in what seems to be with complete control and confidence, Jesus tells Pilate, who is supposed to be the one running the show, but who is also losing control of the situation minute by minute, you have no idea what you are involved in right now. You have no idea what you are involved in right now. Pilate is clearly terrified. He's overwhelmed by the situation in front of him. He doesn't want to kill this man, but he also knows that if he doesn't keep the religious leaders happy, there could be serious consequences. Pilate is a coward. But I venture to think that most of us would have responded exactly the same. I'm reminded of the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, that we hear our mocking voice among the scoffers. Verses 12 through 16 read as follows. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, it was noon. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, 
away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Again, we're reminded, Pilate really wanted no part in this. In Matthew's gospel, we read of Pilate washing his hands. And again, borrowing from the playbook of the serpent, we hear the religious leaders respond, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The manipulation that is taking place here is unprecedented. This was the nail in the coffin for Pilate. When his allegiance to Caesar was questioned, he felt he had no other choice. Upon hearing these words, he brought Jesus out He sat down on the judgment seat. He said to them, behold your king. And it is their response that is probably the most gut-wrenching part of this entire scene because it is in their response that we learn how deceived they had become, how deep the serpent had penetrated into their hearts. The Hebrew scriptures which the religious leaders knew inside and out, time after time after time, identifies God, Yahweh, as the only true king in Israel. The only true king in Israel. Knowing all of this to be true, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Coming from the lips of of the religious leaders who claimed Yahweh as their king. We have no king but Caesar. Right there in front of the God who called them out of Egypt, who rescued them from slavery, who kept them throughout all of their history, they turned their back on him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. What's the point? These religious leaders, these people who have devoted themselves to God, they chose a kingdom of their own making, a kingdom of security, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of safety over the kingdom of God. And we can stand here all day in judgment of these religious leaders. But the question that we need to wrestle with as we meditate upon this horrific story is where do our allegiances lie? Where do our allegiances lie? From the moment Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowds began to thin and the tension started to rise. His own disciples The 12 denied him, betrayed him, and ultimately abandoned him as all but one stood with him at the foot of the cross. The other way around. Only one of his disciples stood with him at the foot of the cross. The question that John has been asking throughout the entirety of his gospel, what kind of king, what kind of Messiah are you looking for? Whom do you seek? What are you looking for? What are we looking for? 
Are you looking for a Messiah who bends to your will, who embodies the ways of this world? Or are you looking for a king who is from a kingdom that is not of this world? One where self-giving love reigns and grace, faith, and forgiveness are our currency. The passage ends. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And that's the point. That's what all of this has been driving towards. Jesus' entire ministry has been leading up to this moment, to him being delivered over to the religious leaders to be crucified. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is the king that we claim to give our allegiance to. A king whose life was marked by a cross, a king whose life was marked by death, a king whose entire existence, even before the incarnation, was marked by self-giving love. By self-giving love. And as we'll see on Sunday, he calls us to the very same posture. As he was sent, so he is sending us. Redeemer, this is good news. That's why this is Good Friday. Because the Son of God was given, was not spared, so that we might have life so that our selfishness, our pride, our sin would be dealt with finally. It is from the cross that he cries out, it is finished. And it's at that point he gives up his spirit. What is finished? The atonement that needed to be made for our sins is complete. We have life because Christ died. We have life because Christ died. This is the good news. It's the story that shapes every single one of our stories. And to give allegiance to him is to embody that story as we go forth in this life. This is the story we cling to. This is the story that shapes us. And this is the story we proclaim to a lost and dying world. This is good news. This is our salvation. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that though Jesus wrestled in the garden, though he asked that the cup would be removed, he submitted himself to your will. Your will was done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, as a result, we have been given the privilege of becoming sons and daughters, your sons and daughters, adopted into your family. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving your one and only son so that we who believe in him might have everlasting life.
Thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus. Thank you for our salvation. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. And we long for Sunday, Lord. We long when we can rejoice at the resurrection of your son, Jesus. But right now, Father, I pray that we would mourn our sin, the sin that nailed your son, Jesus, to a cross. That we would repent. That we would flee from the sin that so entangles us, Lord God. And that we would walk in faith, entrusting ourselves to you minute by minute, day by day, Lord God. We love you with all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.